If any of you have been reading articles or listening to really any discussion of the future of the institutional church, particularly in the US, you are probably familiar with the idea that we're in a little bit of an identity crisis right now. Some even think that the church is due for another major reformation, similar to the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox split or the Protestant Re Reformation. I do not hold this view as it's based on the idea that these reformations happen roughly every 500 years and that this is frankly a bad way to do history. Uh, that said, many of the roles that the church has previously played in the US have been fading over time. Uh, from here on out, I am going to distinguish and uh, between church and religion, foc focusing mainly on church. Um, my use of the word religion refers to belief in a divine entity or essence um, and the worship uh, or ethical devotion to that entity. Uh, while when I say church, I'm referring specifically to the institution or institutions, plural, uh, dedicated to that practice. Uh, in the early 20th century, uh, sociologist Max Weber studied US Christianity, particularly Protestantism, and found that high rates of US church membership in compared to our European counterparts uh, was due to a combination of religious freedom and a high propensity of people to new, move to new places in search of economic opportunity. Essentially, the lack of a state church uh, gave churches a high incentive to compete for members, so to speak, in this sort of free market capitalism sense, if you think about it that way. Um, there wasn't an established state church that was for everyone, so people could just, if they didn't like one church, they could go to a new one. Um, and uh, it also gave those churches no obligation to serve or admit everyone. So it wasn't like a European state church where unless, you know, you really got into trouble, you were expected to be able to, you know, christen your kids, get married, and have a funeral at the state church. Um, so... These churches in the US admitted members in large part based on their willingness to abide by church ethical codes, such as abstinence from alcohol, gambling, or in the case of Mennonites, violence, abstinence from violence. This is where you get a lot of the jokes of like, you know, if you take a Mennonite fishing with you, how do you keep them from drinking all your beer? You bring a second Mennonite. Another good one that came out of this era, what's the difference between Methodists and Baptists? Methodists wave to each other in the liquor store. So, uh, and then kind of pairing with that, when someone like me, for example, a transplant, would move from city to city, uh, you know, we seek out jobs and loans, and the people, you know, when they're trying to evaluate someone who is new in town, a lot of times they would use whatever knowledge they had of their church membership 
to try to evaluate their character. So someone, you know, if I applied to a job, someone look at me, see, okay, you're a Mennonite. Well, you are known for being good workers, um, relatively modest living, so you might not ask me to pay you as much as I could. Um, oh, but, you know, if there's a war that comes up, you know, this could get dicey. Uh, so if it sounds to you like that is discrimination, um, that's because it was, it absolutely was. This is when people can still do that. Um, so this role of the church has faded, not because, not only because it is now essentially illegal to discriminate on, against people based on religion, uh, but it's also that sort of character validation purpose has also uh, been replaced by things like credit scores and background checks. So, moving on from that, there's also sort of what you could call the fire insurance role of the church. That churches, you know, assure their parishioners that if you go here and you believe like we do and you do the things that we do, you will go to heaven. Um, with uh, a lot of, I mean, th this is still in part a function, particularly if you look at uh, evangelical churches, fundamentalist churches. Um, but if you're looking at like mainline Protestant churches, for one, a lot of us don't really want to talk about fire and brimstone all the time. And a lot of parishioners don't really like the idea that their friends who don't go to church with them are going to hell. So that, that kind of function in the U.S. is fading away. Um, so kind of some of the common wisdom emerging is for what role the church should play uh, in our lives today is that it should be a source of ritual, community, and meaning. But the thing is that's not necessarily unique to churches. Um, there's a number of clubs and community organizations that, you know, people meet at regular times. Um, they might have some similar values. They might uh, find community with each other. Um, and then a lot of people have been burned by churches in that way, you know, with histories of sexual abuse and uh, patriarchy, all sorts of not great stuff. Uh, makes people really soured to churches. But the thing is, as people leave churches, there is a vulture-like entity that is more than willing to fill the gap, uh, which I would refer to as capitalism. See, a lot of workplaces, seeing that their employees now have their Sundays free, are looking around and saying, hmm, that's a nice Sunday you've got there. You want to come into the office? We'll give you a promotion. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Chen has recently written a book called Eat, Pray, Code, when she was where she really <laughs> analyzed the spiritual practices of Silicon Valley startups. Um, a lot of these startups, you know, had people coming in who maybe attended church. You know, if they had nine to five jobs beforehand. They had time after work or on the weekends to be in the church band or the church choir, just attend. 
Um, but when they got Silicon Valley jobs, now they were working 70, 80 hours a week, found themselves way too tired to go in, into church. Uh, and the thing is, a lot of these startups would have meditation groups. They would have, you know, religious clubs similar to, you know, a, a club that you might have at university. But one of the big problems with that, not or one of the big problems with that is that people became even more segregated in their spiritual practices than they already had been. In fact, not even everyone at a given company was practically able to attend these things. Um, the salaried workers who didn't necessarily get paid based on the hours they work would gladly go to these functions, but the elderly workers had to keep plugging and chugging and coding. So, it, and it wasn't just only people who worked for this lucrative startup, but only the highest paid workers of that lucrative startup that were getting to attend and receive these spiritual practices. Furthermore, it puts people's spiritual, social, and vocational eggs all in one basket. If they lose their jobs at their startup, they have nothing. So their bosses were essentially capturing their entire lives. Another way, um, another way in which there are this, you know, kind of seeking of ritual, community of meaning is popping up in a little bit of a problematic, well, not just a little bit of a problematic way, but a problematic way is what we're seeing in Christian nationalism, where people don't necessarily see Christianity as a, an ethical framework, but more of an identity and one that they want to see become uh, universal throughout the US by force. Um, they certainly get ritual by attending on Easter and Christmas. They get community by uh, finding other people who also want to take over the world and meaning in wanting to take over the world, so to speak. I, I exaggerate a bit, but not that which brings me to our scriptures today, because as we focus on ritual, community, and meaning, we actually find the scriptures somewhat rejecting this. Uh, in Romans, uh, we constantly see, you know, if it was the adherence of the law in effect, the people committing to the rituals and the various practices written in law, uh, faith is null and promise is void. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's neither violation. For this reason, it depends on faith. Is that focus on our religion being the thing that keeps our ritual community and meaning in place and 
squarely focused on God. In Hosea, which is actually what I was primarily relying on as I was thinking through all of this, Hosea was teaching or prophesying to Israel. Um, And at the time, Israelites were definitely performing the sacrifices that they needed to, as well as sacrifices to idols, as well as uh, (laughs) practicing systemic uh, economic injustice, as well as discriminating against widows and orphans. So that's why Hosea says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God was saying, all of these religious practices are not what's important to me. What is important to me is that you love me and that you practice that active love by rejecting the idols, by bringing about economic justice, and by protecting widows and orphans. And then another thing that I really like to look at is in the New Testament, when they, when either Jesus or Paul or someone else quotes the Old Testament, a lot of times they change a word. So, In Hosea, what we see here is that I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But in Matthew, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So mercy and steadfast love are essentially being made equivalent here which I find fascinating, given that these days, especially in the progressive circles that frankly most of us are a part of here, forgiveness is getting a bit of a bad rap. A lot of people, you know, frankly hurt and understandably feeling quite hurt, think that forgiveness lets people off easy. They have seen forgiveness weaponized, as in the case of being asked to forgive someone who abused them. But I think this is a way in which particularly churches like ours have a unique function in our society, is because we see that mercy is necessary for love. Because frankly, there's no such thing as an institution that doesn't hurt anybody. Because it's made up of people, and people hurt people. If you wanna avoid anything that's gonna ever be problematic, you're gonna be a very, very, very lonely person. And that doesn't mean that we need to just treat problems, systemic problems in our institutions is just inevitable in the cost of doing business. We need to hold our leaders accountable. We need to make sure that we're doing everything to can, that we can to keep people safe. 
but forgiveness and mercy are going to be essential parts of holding us together in spite of the ways that we fail each other. Our, our world today is one in which people are lonelier than ever and where they're seeking out ritual, community, and meaning. And unfortunately, a lot of their bosses want to be all of that to them. But when we not only provide these things, but anchor it in a deep religion and faith in God and a devotion to treating those around us the way that Christ wants us to, we can be a part of the people that not only fulfill the needs of others, but act as Christ to them and push back against those who want to take advantage of them. <laughs>